bring an awareness to what's going on. And that's, that's the big thing, because I said this earlier, awareness is what gives us choice. There's so many of us that whether it's, it's distraction or overstimulation, uh, just the way the world works in 2018, we've kind of gotten away from a lot of this intuitiveness or understanding what's going on. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many people are being drawn towards you know, these practices of breath work and, you know, whether it's cold exposure or Wim Hof type things, meditation, um, just being in nature more and, and, and these grounding exercises that help us get back to slowing down, thinking about things, realizing what's going on. Why are we doing this? What are our values? What's the greater purpose here? So it's it's understanding what's going on, bringing an awareness to it, and making sure that these things are aligned with what our stated goals are or values. You, you take me down, spin me around. You got me running all the lights. Don't make a sound. Talk to me now. Let me inside your mind. Welcome to the Off-Ball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 beach volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and movement leader. At the Off-Ball Athlete, we're diving into the territory, the time, the effort when you do not have the ball. So high performance arguably is when you're putting the ball in the net or when you're scoring or when you're putting up the stats, but what gets measured matters. And so we're trying to talk about the stuff that really isn't measured, that 99% of the time when you don't have the ball, when you're not on the court, when you're not performing in whatever area that you generally perform in. Who are you? What's your integrity? What do you do when no one's watching and holding you accountable when you're responsible for yourself? And how can we increase that space so that your performance then increases versus just trying to squeeze more out of that 1% when you have the ball, the implementer, when you are presenting or in front of people in whatever your capacity is. And today's guest is an incredible human being who's done a ton of exploration and writing and shared a lot with the world with regards to this human capacity. His name is Ryan Munsey. He's the author of the book, Fuck Your Feelings, which is incredible. He is a podcast host. He's contributed to men health. He is a leader in the space of physicality, mental performance, but more importantly, he leads by his own actions. And so we go deep into his journey of self-discovery and how he's managed to control his emotions so that his life shows up differently. And we go through some sport, we go through his journey, owning a gym and going through the depths of being in fitness. And then we transition over towards helping people both in mind and body. And there's some incredible nuggets here. He goes on some tangents that are just phenomenal. If you are at all interested in feeling better, making better decisions in your life, and just in general, being a better human being, this is a great episode for you. Whether you're a parent, coach, youth athlete, there's so much to be gained by listening to Ryan. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. Please fire a review on iTunes if you possibly can, if you're enjoying this and share this with someone as we organically grow. Thank you so much for your support and enjoy this episode with Ryan Muncy. Welcome to the Offball Podcast. Today's guest is Ryan Muncy author of Earmuffs, Fuck Your Feelings, and the host of the Better Human Project podcast. Ryan, welcome to the show, man. Martin, thanks for having me. It, it is my pleasure. And as we just riffed on before recording here, 
I feel like the world has has brought you into my circle, and uh, we have a few different connection points globally, which I find very interesting. But I'm at a time of self exploration right now, and I'm as I uncover what you're about. You are also living in many of those things and, and doing and leading many of those things. So I'm super psyched for today's conversation, man. Yeah, and I mean I'll say the exact same thing right back to you. I mean, like you said, we do have a few different connections and, and it's, it's interesting that we haven't connected until now, but, um, you know, when you reached out to me, I just, I got excited just simply by the way you reached out and, and what you said and, uh, have really been looking forward to uh, sitting down and, and catching up with you. Sweet, man. Well, let's, let's give a tip of the hat to my boy, Josh Binstock, because I later found out, uh, when, when I spoke of you that, you guys know each other. What's the connection with uh, with my boy Josh? Yeah, so Josh and I met. Um, first time we met was I don't know, maybe two or three years ago um, when I was hosting my previous podcast, um, Optimal Performance Podcast. He was uh, a guest on that show, so we got to talk a lot about you know his visualization strategies and. Uh, some of how he incorporates you know, his chiropractic work into recovery and, and longevity for athletes. And then, of course, visualization for being successful. Um, a lot of that came through. Uh, that podcast was sponsored by um, and, and kind of the IP intellectual property of Natural Stacks. Um, mm. And he was uh, one of their, I guess you would call it like a champion athlete. And um you know, so that was sort of our connection there. We met at a couple of conferences and it just always kind of stayed in touch and um, sort of the same way you and I kind of talk about being on the same wavelength with a lot of stuff, both in life and sport. You know, Josh and I kind of connected on a lot of that as well. It, it makes a ton of sense. Josh is the most competitive human being that I have ever been in contact with or, or had the pleasure of playing beach volleyball with and that guy is willing to get under some really big stones to to get one inch you know one centimeter performance gains and I'm, I'm not surprised you guys had a deep conversation about visualization and the mental side because he he is a specialist on that front so I, I'm actually going to dig back and, and try to find that podcast to get into my my boy's head <laughs> I'll find the link and I'll send it to you. Cool. I appreciate it. And we can toss that in the show notes as well. Um, okay. So where I like to lead this off, just based on the, the off ball, what's happening in current culture is this early specialization within things. And, and my goal is to always present a guest in a way of at 13, 14, 15, like what were you up to? What can we, what can we kind of know about Ryan in, in his childhood? Um, just so we can get an understanding of, of your journey as we explore your interest points and what you've pursued because you've had a really well-varied life and you've done a lot of really cool things. Yeah, you know, I, I am really fortunate that I can say that I've had the experiences that I've had up to this point in my life. Um, you know, I, I owe a lot of that to my parents and, and their intentional efforts to provide me the childhood and, and the life that, you know, they ended up providing me, um, you know, growing up, I played every sport that involved a ball. Um, I played baseball, I played soccer, I played basketball, um, always loved football, never played organized football. Uh, at 13 or 14, I was probably, um, finishing baseball. Uh, I did not play baseball once I got to high school. Um, and the reason for that was that it was a spring sport and it was the same time as soccer. So I couldn't, play both. I had to choose one. Uh, and I 
enjoyed soccer more um, because, you know, as you can imagine, baseball can be fairly boring for somebody who, uh, as I have later found out, has ADD. (laughs) Uh, So early in my baseball career, I was either the pitcher or the catcher. uh, And then as I got older, uh, I got uh, I found myself in the outfield and that was the end of baseball for me. So if I wasn't touching the ball on every play, I didn't want to do it. Likewise, um, likewise. And uh, so, so by the time I got to high school, uh, I guess that would have been maybe 14. Um, it was basketball and soccer, which I played all the way through. Um, I was not good enough to play in college. Um, but yeah, at, at 13 and 14, I was um, just, I, I was really, really happy. I, you know, just I lived for sports. If I wasn't playing them, I was watching them. Um, you know, most of the people that I looked up to and and sort of had as heroes uh, were athletes: Michael Jordan, Ken Griffey Jr. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I had the posters everywhere, and you know, just really lived that um, you know that that life that that you would imagine as a you know thirteen or fourteen year old who you know lived, breathed sports. Love it, man. And I truly believe sport is is an incredible vessel to create better human beings. And so I'll, I'll transition into this. That's one of your ethos is, is the human better project and, and believing in creating better human beings. Like in what way did playing sport or your relationship with sport challenge you to, to let's just say your journey that you're on to become a better human being like do you draw from your athletic experience is that something that really catalyzed that process or you know you were just a standalone athlete and one day you got hit by this thought and, and then you went into the self-discovery journey yeah I would say 100% it was the, the genesis for you know everything that has kind of led me to where I am today I mean I never really thought about that part of it until you just asked the question. But I mean, I've always said, you know, when people ask me, you know, why I went on this path, it always starts in college. That's usually where I start telling the story. But, you know, like I said, in the previous answer, I was not good enough to play Mm -hmm. basketball or soccer at college, at the college that I chose. I went to Clemson University, um, who, when I was there, had two guys that now or since have played on team USA for, uh, for soccer, um, you know, basketball competes at the highest level. And um, of course, football, they've recently won a national championship. So, you know, I wasn't that good. I wasn't that big, strong or fast. Um, and I always tell people that, you know, in college, that's where I really began, um, learning about nutrition and, and, that's where I became obsessed with lifting weights and and doing things in the weight room and and the whole bodybuilding, which led to modeling, which, you know, led to nutrition and all that stuff. So, but, but for me, it was, I had to find a way to fill that competitive void. Mm -hmm. You know, I always had this thing to throw myself into, uh, for camaraderie. and, And we talk about the locker room and, um, you know, there was this, uh, this place that you could go and, and kind of work through your, your mental issues. You know, I remember, Um, you know, as a young kid, you don't really have the emotional intelligence or the awareness of of what's going on. But I can remember, you know, countless days where, you know, I'd be out in the driveway playing basketball, working through things in my head, you know, because that's, that was just how I knew to do it. I wasn't quite equipped with, um, you know, the, the strategies or, or the things that we talk about a lot 
now, you know, in terms of breathing or meditation or yoga, or whatever. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, as former athletes, we gravitate towards things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely played a, a foundational role, you know, for me in that sense. Um, in another sense, I think it teaches you, obviously it teaches you teamwork. It teaches you coachability, um, you know, discipline, accountability, responsibility to your teammates. Um, and these are all great attributes to, you know, carry into the rest of your life, whether it's, you know, relationships or business or, or whatever. Um, and you know, I've had the good fortune to be able to coach and, and help people on a lot of different levels over the last 10 or 12 years. And to an individual, those who have a background in sports respond, I don't want to say better, but better's that's, that's the word. Um, they respond better to coaching. Um, they're very coachable and they're used to looking for what's wrong. How can I improve? You know, just like you said with Josh, I mean, that, that competitive nature, that willingness to get better, um, you know, to, if I have to lift this, you know, huge, massive stone for a 1% increase, I'll do it. And, and I think that's just a, a mindset and, and a belief system that comes from, um, playing sports and, you know, having that background. Um, that's not to say that, that I've worked with people. I have worked with people who didn't play sports that have that approach. Um, but I think it's just, it's a much more common character trait in those who grew up playing sports. Well, the, the, the coachability piece is is humongous. I mean, if you've spent your life playing sport, you've likely been coached by a lot and you understand how to react to certain situations and how to hold yourself and how to seek out coaching and, and how to manipulate your performance or the dialogue inside of your head to, match a certain coaching style and I, I totally get it and I I put sport on this highest pedestal in, in understanding it can impact people's lives and so I want to just parallel you and I had a very similar journey where we came out of sport and the first thing I did was I started lifting weights and that I needed to fill that competitive void and I started to compete with myself I want to dive into that one with you just as we kind of progress through your journey and your story like what was it about training and and lifting that that drew you to it and, and what was that journey for you within the strength bit I think it was it was multi-pronged for me um you know there's the obvious side of you know being able to set goals and and work towards them um there was you know we kind of touched on this uh, a minute ago but but the the act of participating in sport, you know, gives you a mental break from, you know, the things that are, I guess another way of saying that would be to get out of your own head, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, when you're 18 to 22 years old and, and you're in college, you're, you're still trying to figure out who you are and what's going on. You're dealing with school and kind of coming of age and, and all of the things that are involved with that. So, you know, being able to, lose myself in a workout and kind of come out on the other side, um, you know, and have endorphins and uh, all these other neurochemicals that get released through physical activity. Um, you know, and, and sometimes in doing that with a workout partner, you know, you get a lot of the socialization that we would get through playing sports as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, so there was also that side of it, but then, you know, I think for me, and I was, 
oblivious to this at the time, but in looking back, I realized that, you know, part of the the draw for me towards, especially the aesthetic uh, side of uh, lifting, you know, meaning bodybuilding and physique modeling, um, was that I wasn't really happy with who I was or how other people saw me. And I incorrectly felt or believed at that time that if I could make my exterior look a certain way, that people would see me as the person I wanted them to see me as. Um, now, as I've matured, I've realized that you know you just have to become that person and you have to move through life that way and, and carry yourself that way and act that way. And then people will begin to see you as that person uh, because you will be that person. Uh, it has nothing to do with your external appearance. But again, we're talking about an evolution of, you know, emotional maturity and uh, awareness. But, and I'm going to pause, like think of how many people are on that journey though, and go through that path of self-discovery. Cause you nailed it for me too, man. Like we all go through that. That's so fascinating that you articulated that way. Cause I experienced the exact same thing. And I can just, when I enter the gym, I can see the amount of people that are going through that or they're stuck in that for yeah. 10, 20, 30 years, they're not able to, to find the evolution of that process. Yeah. I mean, we're all at, we're, it's, it's a spectrum. It's a journey. It never ends. And, and we're all on our own path, our own journey. And I think it's, it's very hard if you haven't been there yet, it's very hard to, to look forward and see the, the little checkpoints or, or the, 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 the places along the way on that journey. But it's, it's much easier to look back and see those different points. So I think the further we get on our own journey, the easier it is to look back and be able to identify exactly where other people are in that journey. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. I mean, you know, and I'm fortunate, like I said, I, I've been in gyms uh, for over a decade. You know, I own my own gym. I've written for, for you know, some online and print publications. You know, so, so this is a world that I know very well. I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, on this journey. So it's one that, in watching and helping other people go through it themselves, it gave me a lot of insight into, you know, my own motivations and my own, um, you know, journey and and why I was drawn to certain things. So, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, at this point in our journey, we can probably walk into a gym and, and pinpoint pretty closely where someone is in that journey. Um, and, that's, I think what I would say that I want for people is to be able to continue that journey. And as you said, not get stuck in some of those, um, maybe, maybe the right way to say it would be like lower levels of that pyramid, uh, of kind of evolution right. and self-awareness. Totally, totally. Well, let's, let's evolve with the story then. So you're, you're in the strength and conditioning kind of market you're getting in there. Is this a time where you got your gym or you, you acquired a gym like, or did you move into the modeling space and then transition from there? Like take me through that story then. Yeah. So it was, uh, I graduated from high school in 2002, uh, went to Clemson and stayed there for six years. So it was 2008 when I left Clemson and, um, I had the opportunity when I left to either move to New York city and become a fitness slash fashion model or I could pay to do an internship at the end of my degree and become a registered dietitian. So while I was in school, I became very frustrated with what was being taught and how the 
nutrition recommendations did not align with the science of, you know, how our body works and, and what we need to actually thrive and, and be optimal. So I really kind of being disenfranchised, I really had no intention of, of paying to do this internship to um, perpetuate this thing that I, you know, couldn't reconcile. Um, and then simultaneously having the opportunity to go to New York City and be a model, I said, well, that's a pretty easy decision. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I went to New York and man, that was, uh, that was eye opening. Um, it was, it was a great experience. I'm glad I did it, but it was not, uh, what I expected. Um, mm. so that stint lasted, uh, a little bit less than a year. Um, so from like the time I left school in 2008, spring of 2008 until the end of 2008, 2009, I moved home to Roanoke, Virginia, um, got a job as a personal trainer at a gold's gym there did that for about three years. And uh, a friend of mine uh, and I were, were lifting partners and, you know, we did very well as, as trainers there. And um, that's the time where I was really learning more and, and reading and, and writing for, for some of these magazines. And in 2012, we just had enough. And um, we'd been talking for two years about going and, and opening our own gym and doing it our way. And um, ultimately, you know, I just said, I'm done, I'm out, I'm doing this thing. Um, and ended up doing it on my own, uh, but started my own facility, um, called house of strength performance training facility yeah. in 2012 and did that until, uh, the end of 2015. Um, so it was about three years, uh, where I had that three and a half. Awesome. Awesome. And talk to me about the philosophy behind that facility when you opened up that facility when you anticipated someone walking through those doors what was the process that you wanted to take them through your process to create change in their lives yeah so a lot of it comes down to strength i mean the the name of the gym was house of strength because i felt like um in that world of health fitness wellness and even in the mental space um, and this is a quote from, I believe it's from Charles Staley. Um, so I want to make sure I give credit to that because it's not mine, but, but I think he said strength is the adaptation that leads to all other adaptations. Oh, that's and for me as a strength coach, uh, I hate calling myself a personal trainer. I just think there's too many bad ones out there. So I don't want to be lumped into that. So I always call myself a strength coach, but as a coach, as a uh, as a person who is charged with helping you become better um, in the in the gym, outside of the gym, uh, on the field, in life, um, you know, if we get stronger, and you can just look at this from from a purely barbell standpoint. I mean, if if you're able to lift a heavier load, then you know the percentage of that that you can use if your max goes from 100 pounds to 200 pounds. 70% now is from 70 pounds to 140 pounds. Mm -hmm. So you're using at the same intensity, at the same percentage, um, you're using twice as much weight, which means you're doing twice as much work, which means you can burn more calories. So if your real goal is fat loss and we get you stronger, then you can do more work and, and expend more calories. Or you can, if you're an athlete, then you can now apply more force. You'll be bigger, you'll be uh, faster, you'll be stronger. You can, you can hit the ball further, you can run faster, you can jump higher, whatever it is. So, so I really love that, that strength is the adaptation that leads to all others. Um, and without, I'll stop there on the strength side because I don't 
think that that's really where we want to go unless you do we can dive no, into no, that keep, but keep, keep it moving because it's it's funny that you say that in in my experience within the industry as well i believe that controlling your body is the first step into then controlling your mind because that pain that feedback of movement is is so critical to then start to go upstairs a little bit more and so the yeah they're they're so connected i don't think that we can um separate them and i think you know my approach to health and, and well-being is is very integrated and uh, i think it's it's naive and and it's naive to think that that we could just focus on mental health or just focus on physical health or mm -hmm. just focus on nutrition. I mean, these things go hand in hand and they all impact each other. Um, you know, you, you've read the book. I mean, you, you probably got to the point where I talk about kind of everything is everything. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're inseparable. You know, the body is one unit. And, uh, so, so back to the gym, I mean, m what I, want for, for my life, what I feel like my mission in life is, is to make sure that everyone I meet lives a stronger, healthier, happier life for having crossed paths with me. So that was sort of the, the tagline for the gym, stronger, healthier, happier. So I wanted people to be able to walk into that facility and be a part of a community where everyone was invested in self-improvement and, and moving forward and becoming the best version of themselves that they could possibly be. Um, I didn't care how many calories you burned in a workout. I didn't care about, you know, a lot of these superficial, uh, low level things that are dominating the conversations in the fitness space. Um, or at least they were and, and probably still do. I, I really don't even pay attention to that <laughs> world anymore. So I probably yeah. shouldn't even speak to what's going on. Um, like, and I guess that's kind of part of my own continued evolution is that, and, and part of the reason that I eventually got out of the gym world was because I wanted to have deeper, more meaningful, higher level conversations. Uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore on a daily basis where, you know, it was, oh, well, if I do this on a Saturday night, what do I have to do on Monday to make up for it? And I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing that on Saturday night if it's not aligned with your goals and your values. I'm with um, you. I'm with you. Keep it, keep it rolling. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, I, I wanted a place where, um, you know, if you were, if you were a high school athlete and you wanted to, to earn a college scholarship, you know, we can help you become the person who a college would give a scholarship to. Um, we would develop your, your physical abilities to have the, um, the performance capabilities on the field, but also, you know, be that person mentally who a coach would want on their team as a leader um, and and a competitor. Uh, if you were a general population adult, you know, uh, a mom, a grandmother, you know, we could help educate you so that you knew how to eat and, and not just for yourself, but so that you could teach your kids and, and their kids and set an example for, um, you know, for future generations in your family. Um, you know, so, so that was the vision with, you know, having my own facility. Love it. And that takes up to about 2015. So let, I'd love a quick little summary of getting up to 2018. Cause I want to get into your book cause it's so juicy. Um, yeah. So, uh, 2015 was actually, um, so 2014, I got the idea to start a podcast and, and I, that was my first podcast was house of strength podcast. And it was for the gym, through the gym, we talked about, you know, a lot of the health and fitness type stuff. 
Uh, I had a lot of friends who were strength coaches and that was sort of the focus. I quickly realized how much went into a podcast and after about 30 episodes, I shut it down. And when I did, I had already crossed paths with the folks at natural stacks and, um, they offered me the position, uh, to host their show, the optimal performance podcast. And of course they said, you know, we'll pay you to do it. So that answered the problem of wanting to do a podcast, but it wasn't monetized. So, you know, early 2015 was when we launched the OPP and, um, we were really fortunate with that. I mean, the, the day it launched, we hit number two on iTunes, which was phenomenal. Wow. And I ended up hosting that show for, um, two and a half years and just left that post, uh, at the end of 2017 because of what I had planned for 2018. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, through that two and a half years, you know, that's where I got to meet a lot of people, you know, like Josh Benstock and, um, have conversations with researchers and neuroscientists and, you know, elite athletes and, and really get to dive deeper into, you know, these conversations that we've already alluded to. Um, and then in 2017, I wrote the book and knew that it was going to come out in 2018. Uh, so just, it made perfect sense to, you know, walk away from the OPP, start my own show, um, and I had the really good, good fortune of, of being introduced to my co-founder at the better human project, uh, whose name is Ryland Hormel. And originally, you know, we met and he was going to help with media for the book and, and all of the promotion around that. But as we were talking about what this podcast could be, you know, he just, he and I just, uh, we were, like you said, we were kind of on the same wavelength and we had similar ideas and, uh, everything just kind of snowballed and became, something bigger. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've really struggled with, um, no, I don't want to say struggled with, but a question that I've asked myself is over the years, you know, what's the point of all of this? And, and I don't necessarily mean that in like, why are we here? Although, you know, you could go down that route, but yeah, it's I like, don't, I don't get nihilistic vibes from that. That there, there's a, that's a positive question. There's, there's right. Like meat and so, potatoes so I that. mean that in the sense of like, okay, great. You got a college scholarship to play sports. What's so great about that? How does that make your life different? Um, or, you know, you're, you're strong. You squatted a thousand pounds. Awesome. Is that what they're going to put on your tombstone? Is that like, mm. does that define you? Is that your legacy? Is that all you're going to be is really strong? And so with this new podcast, Better Human Project, we wanted it to be something more than just people waving their hands in the air and saying, hey, look at me, follow me, listen to my show because I want you to listen to my show. We wanted it to be something that helped people do something with all of this knowledge that we were gaining and sharing. Like, great, you're the best person that you can be. What are you doing with that? Or what are we doing with that? And so, you know, now the, the tagline for the new show, Better Human Project, is be better and do better. So the idea is that we continue to talk to some of the, the people that are, you know, thought leaders and, and industry leaders and, and people that are changing the world. And we share the things that our listeners need, the tools, the tactics and strategies to continue to grow. And not just in the health and wellness realm, but in all aspects of being a better human. I just feel like health and wellness is only one pillar of who we are and what we do as a human. Yeah. So immediately the 
the range of conversations can expand and the range of guests can expand. But now it's not just enough to say, great, we're smarter, we're bigger, we're faster, we're stronger, we're better in relationships, better in relationships. But what are we doing with that? How are we helping our communities? How are we helping our fellow humans? And, and you know, that's what we really wanted to focus on with this. So yeah, calendar turned to 2018 and, and the book is out. The podcast is launched. Um, one of our goals, one of the goals that I wrote down at the beginning of 2018 was to be able to donate $20,000 to charity this year. And we've already increased that goal to $75,000. Um, wow. So yeah, it's, it's just continuing to push to be better as individuals, but to see how we can be better um, as, as communities and, and how we can not only do better for ourselves, but for other people. Incredible, man. Well, I got you right where I want you now. We're, we're, <laughs> we're talking about the book We're we're talking about current life and the impact that you're making. And it's, it's so fitting because I had that same journey within, you know, quote unquote fitness. And really I desired to have deeper conversations because the, the, the start is controlling, you know, the body, then get it in the mind. But then that next layer is, is a deeper conversation. And so that's, that's for me where the off ball athlete came in and most people are still trying to squeeze more from their on ball performance, but you only have the ball 1% of the time. So arguably there's 99% of a possibility that you can address to then impact the 1% versus just trying to squeeze more to that 1%. And so my philosophy and what just hit me like a ton of bricks was here we are chasing this higher performance at earlier and earlier stages in life, but higher performance kind of meant we were forgetting that, or forgetting that there was a human being there. And so that high performance was not necessarily human performance. It was sacrificing a bunch of stuff so that we showed up better for the win or, or we hit our stats. But how are we using the vessel of sport to create better human beings? And so earmuffs, fuck your feelings. This book, man, is about the human being. And so I'm just going to read your tagline, master your mind, accomplish any goal and become a more significant human. You know, when I read that, I just went, that's it, dude. That's it. Yeah. I'm glad you like it. And we, we put a lot of thought into what that should say to, you know, how do we convey? I mean, this, the book is, it's not a short book. <laughs> so how do we distill what this thing is down into, uh, you know, a sub headline or a subtitle that, you know, okay, the title stops you in your tracks. You're like, okay, what is this? Now the subtitle's got to be something where you say, okay, I can get down with that. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, so we put a lot of thought into what that was. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it resonates with you because I, I think that um, that means a lot to me. Well, two, two books that significantly impacted my life. And another one um, is, is by Mark Manson, has the F word in it as well. So earmuffs again, but uh, you know, The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. When I read that, I went, holy smokes, I care too much about everything. And, and because of that, I'm not able to focus on the, the things that are most important and really be skilled at those. And so that changed my life. And I'm really, really digging. So I'm halfway through the book right now. And so let's dive into, you know, why feelings? Why is that? And there's a stat that you provided me. 95% of your decisions are based on how you feel. That's a lot 
of impact in one's life if 95% of your decisions are made by how you feel versus what's actually happening. So can you talk to me and let's expand on like why are feelings important, man? Yeah. And that's, that stat is huge. I mean, a lot of, I get a lot of questions on, you know, why is this the name of the book? And, um, I'll be honest. I mean, that is self-talk. I tell myself that all the time. It's, it's something that I use to, you know, remind myself, Hey, doesn't matter how you feel today. You know, you've got to do, if you want what you say you want, you've got to show up and do what you know you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And I have to be honest, if, if that statistic wasn't true, that the 95% of decisions being made based on how we feel, if that wasn't true, then I don't think that, that this would be the title of the book. That statistic is that powerful and that important to um, the rest of this book. And when I first saw that, I mean, it just blew my mind. I mean, when I, when I sit back, I mean, I've always been fascinated by, you know, why people, why some people succeed and other people don't, you know, I mentioned, you know, the, the decade plus that I've been working with people in nutrition and fitness goals and whatever. I, I've seen a lot of people succeed and I've seen a lot of people fail to succeed. And I have had the same interaction with successful people and failure people. I didn't give the people who succeeded anything different than I gave the people who failed. So what, what's going on in their head right. and, and what is happening that is preventing some people from having success? And as a coach, there's nothing more frustrating than somebody who isn't able to get the results that you want to see them get. And I think I, I was really just trying to answer those questions and, and to do it in a way that in presenting the answer would be able to help some of these people who were being frustrated and being stymied, not by the process, but, but by themselves and go back to what you're saying. I mean, 95% of our decisions, that is insane. That's so crazy. I mean, think about how many Olympics did you compete in Martin? Just, just one. Yeah. After the Olympics, I I decided. Okay. So, so one, but, but the Olympics occur on a four year cycle. So at minimum you prepared for this for four years at minimum, but it's not like you just decided four years before the Olympics that you were going to compete in the Olympics. Correct. Right. I mean, you had been playing and training for many years before that. Absolutely. So if we, if we continue to use an Olympic athlete as our example, you've got to show up and do the right thing for four, eight, 12, 16 years to ultimately wind up at your desired destination. Everything is habit and practice. And, and it's, these things are neurological wirings. And, um, you know, the, the saying of like, uh, I think it's a Buddhist saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. And just developing this way of moving through life as a person who does what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, will turn you into somebody who is insanely successful, especially compared to, say, the average person. Now, will it make you an Olympic champion? I can't promise that. That's only like 1% of 1% of 1% of the population. But to even be in the 90th percentile or 99th percentile is, is an accomplishment that only happens if we find a way to override the way we feel in the now and do what is right for long term. And, and we talk about this in the book and break it down into the parts of our brain that can only focus on the now and the parts that, you know, have this higher level function. Um, and we can get into all that in a minute. But but just to kind of stay with this, 
you know, let's, let's look at this 13 or 14 year old athlete who says, I want to play sports in college. Yeah. Well, if that's what you want now, I totally agree with you, Martin. I don't think that we should be specializing at, at nine or at 14 or, or even until after high school. But what that young athlete does need to focus on is moving through life and conducting himself or herself in a manner that is congruent with that stated goal. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen it. When we're around these young athletes, we can very, very quickly and easily identify the ones who are going to have success in pursuing that goal based on how they conduct themselves off the ball. Are they showing up to class? Are they studying? Are they are they paying attention to what they eat? Now, they don't have to have the most perfect diet in the world, but if they're not putting any effort into eating, if they don't care about that, if they're not taking care of them, their bodies or themselves, that's not a good indicator of what's to come. I guess to give you tangible examples of feelings, it, maybe I want to go to Starbucks uh, or, or I go into Starbucks for my morning coffee and you know I want that donut because it looks good. I mean, that's a, that's a limbic system or an impulse buy that is only focused on the now as opposed to that second thought that comes a little bit later. So the limbic system is is very, very quick. It's irrational. Um, It's motivated by, um, you know, instant gratification. And the the key point there is that it's it's not capable of thinking beyond the now, whereas the the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, is um, sort of like that sage, wise, person who's been there and, and knows what we're supposed to do. So we've all been there. We've all seen that bakery case and we have that initial reaction to the smell. And as soon as it's there, you're like, oh man, that looks great. It smells great. And then a few seconds later, you have that thought that comes into your head of, oh, I shouldn't, but, or I shouldn't because fill in the blank. And a lot of people beat themselves up for that, for their initial reaction being one that is, you know, a certain way. But the truth is that's how we're wired. That's our biology. The, the limbic system is on the, on the positive side. We need that quick reaction for survival. And, and in our past, we really did. We don't so much anymore because we live in a completely different world than you know, our ancestors did even 200 years ago. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make is you know, realize, and, and this is, we dive into this in the book, but, but realize that that is a normal reaction. Have awareness Uh, I want people to be aware that that is normal. It's okay. And then it's this awareness that creates choice. And it's in that moment where if we've clearly defined our values ahead of time that we can say, is this action, uh, is skipping practice today because I want to go four wheeling with my friends or I want to, you know, go hang out with whatever. Is that action aligned with my stated goal of getting a college scholarship for this sport? Or am I doing it because what I just feel like doing in the now? It's such a hard question to to answer in that moment because it's simple. It's either a yes or a no. I love that you position it that way. And it makes me think of when I smell that bakery, I'm just laughing to myself because I'll sit there and I'll smell it. Like I'll smell the shit out of it, you know, like, (laughs) oh, that smells so good. And I'll just sit with the smell and I'll let the smell be good enough that I don't, yeah. I don't do it. You know, like I let that instinct take over and give me joy, but I don't need to do the thing, the trap per se, but I let that system enjoy it for a moment. And then I move on. Cause I don't need to do the thing. I can just experience that moment and let it be right. Rather than fight it, go with it and then pause, then make my decision. 
And I, I love the way you articulate that, man. That's great. Moving on to a little bit deeper of a level now. So understanding that, holy smokes, 95% of, of what we do is, is more feelings-based. What would be the next step of, of unraveling that? And I think, you know, going from physiology to, to mental and how those two are intertwined, how the brain is connected to the body and vice versa. Like, how do you describe that to then create change in people's lives? Yeah. And I, I probably got ahead of myself with that last answer, but I, I think a lot of it is within that. So, um, you know, the, the first part of the book is really trying to help people understand how we're wired and, it's just like any other system. Like if, if you don't, if you don't read the user's manual for a VCR or, uh, I, I don't know what people read a user's manual for in 2018, but <laughs> if you don't understand how a system works, it's very hard to own it and be able to bend it to your will or, or to do with it what you want. Um, and you know, what we're really trying to do here with this mental mastery is, understand how we're wired, how we're programmed so that we can control it and, and not in a way of forcing it to do what it doesn't want to do, but to just make sure that we're the ones driving this thing as opposed to allowing it to uh, steer us without our conscious awareness. So I like to use the analogy of, you know, let's, let's say you are in a ship and you leave Europe. How do you make sure that you hit North America exactly at your destination. If you're trying to sail or, or fly to New York City from London, England, you know, how do you make sure that that's exactly where you land? And, you know, if we, if we allow our feelings to dictate every decision that we would have to make on that course, you know, we're, we're basically allowing the winds and the tides to take us where they want, as opposed to saying, no, I'm going to get exactly there. So, you know, to answer your question, I think understanding our physiology, our biology is the first step. And I think that's, that's why it's so important that that's the beginning of the book is, is to give people, um, you know, no, you will not be certified as a neuroscientist when you read this book, but I do want you to understand how things work so that you can then bring an awareness to what's going on. And that's, that's the big thing, because I said this earlier, awareness is what gives us choice. There's so many of us that whether it's it's distraction or overstimulation, uh, just the way the world works in 2018, we've kind of gotten away from a lot of this intuitiveness or understanding what's going on. And, and that's, you know, we, we talked about this before we hit record. I think that's one of the reasons that so many people are being drawn towards you know, these practices of breath work and, you know, whether it's cold exposure or Wim Hof type things, meditation, um, just being in nature more and, and, and these grounding exercises that help us get back to slowing down, thinking about things, realizing what's going on. Why are we doing this? What are our values? What's the greater purpose here? So it's, it's understanding what's going on, bringing an awareness to it and making sure that these things are aligned with what our stated goals are or values. Totally. And you know, you just hit me in the mind cause I, I have this theory that our, our fight or flight response is, is unfortunately getting a bit twisted in, you know, 2018 has been for quite some time because we get so caught up in, in our work on Instagram, on social media and all these other things that in reality are totally not a parallel to a lion being on our front doorstep. 
you know, we're, we are so far removed from what is actually a fight or flight response. And so to reconnect with nature and to go into a cold plunge tub, you're immediately and forced to reconnect with your fight or flight response and like, oh, right, that's what that is for. And then learn to control it. And then all of a sudden you go to your meeting and when you talk, you realize, oh, this isn't a life or death situation. I know how to control this better now. So all of a sudden that kind of litmus test of being able to understand what's a 10 out of 10. And then you go into a cold tub and you're like, oh, right, the 10 out of 10 that I thought was a 10 out of 10 because my <laughs> life just kind of spiraled outside of control because I'm not aware is actually a 2 out of 10. You know, am I making sense yeah. there? Yeah, no, that's that's great. I'm, I'm laughing. And, and I think not just realizing that those other things are less of a threat, but it's also the more we practice these things, the more we can inoculate ourselves to adversity. I mean, if you mm -hmm. can get into a cold tub and stay calm and resist that urge to get sympathetic and breathe and stay parasympathetic, it, it prepares us that much more for when life inevitably throws proverbial cold water on us, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it just makes us that much more equipped to handle these things. It's, it's a mental strength thing. And again, going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, strength is an adaptation that leads to all others. Um, what's really fascinating in, in writing the book, I, I came across some research that correlates heart rate variability to emotional resiliency. So this is, there's an entire chapter dedicated to this in the book. So I'll try to do like a cliff notes version of it, but, but basically heart rate variability is a measure of the time, the difference in the time between the beats. So it's not the time between the beats by themselves. It's the difference between beats. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was discovered in the 1960s by Dr. Stephen Porges. And, and I had the really good fortune of interviewing him for the book. And, Heart rate variability is, is basically a measure of how much time we spend in the sympathetic state, fight or flight, versus how much time we spend in the parasympathetic state, which is talked about way less often, but it's, you know, it, as, as a corollary to fight or flight, then the parasympathetic state is rest and digest, or sometimes called feed and breed. So the, the goal to have a higher heart rate variability higher HRV, which is also synonymous with vagal tone. So higher vagal tone, higher heart rate variability comes from spending more time in the parasympathetic state. So from a fitness or, or a performance standpoint, when we look at a lot of athletes and we look at recovery, if we want to get a, if we want to get our heart rate variability higher so that we can perform better or go harder the next time we train or perform, then we focus more on these recovery tools, mm -hmm. whether it's ice bath or massage or yoga, meditation, breath work, sleep. And conversely, if we look at this from the mental side, it's the exact same prescription for increasing emotional resiliency. And that's what was so fascinating to me was that I can't believe I needed a study to tell me that. I knew that <laughs> because, okay, so higher vagal tone or higher HRV corresponds with greater emotional resiliency. So think of emotional resiliency as like your bandwidth. How much stuff can you deal with? What's your capacity to deal with life or, or the cold water that life inevitably throws on us, right? And if you want an example of this, if you've ever taken a red eye flight 
and, and not gotten a lot of sleep. Or if you're a parent and you remember, you know, not getting sleep the first few months of, of a child being born or just any night where you didn't get sleep, and you know, the next day how you are more irritable. Things just bother you to a greater degree than they would if you're well rested. And that is a clear, clear indicator of decreased emotional resiliency due to decreased heart rate variability. Our preparedness, you know, there's a lot of uh, rings and watches and, and apps that report HRV as, as readiness or preparedness. And, and those things go down when we don't take care of our heart rate variability or vagal, vagal tone. So it's just fascinating. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier, that they're all related, right? So physical performance and mental performance and, you know, these things are inseparable. The body is one. So the things that are good for mental resiliency are also good for physical performance. And, you know, these, these recovery strategies, whether you're an athlete or somebody pursuing higher levels of enlightenment, you know, it, it's, it's all there. It's all kind of the same stuff. I, I agree. And there's a, a personal philosophy that I'm really starting to bring to life and, and enjoying and it's intention, integrity, intensity. And I've been playing the intensity game for 30 years without knowing it. And now I realize, oh, I want to get into the integrity bit and then I want to go deeper into the intention bit of life. But if you're sitting in intensity thinking that how hard you press the gas pedal is everything and you live at 100 thinking that staying at 100 is going to take you there, you will soon find out that it's not the game. The game is not intensity. And so I love this because if you stay at 100%, you're just thinning yourself out. And you're just going to be as, as thin as a piece of paper. And at some point in time, you'll break versus it's not about how hard you go in that boat. It's about how hard you rest so that when you do have that boat, it shows up better. And it, this conversation is so apropos. And I just got to give a tip of the hat to Brian McKenzie and, and Rob Wilson at the study of the breath cycle through through nasal breathing that that they're going through. And I study under them. I want to take this more to the breath because it's such low-hanging fruit for people to control you know, that vagus tone, that sympathetic, parasympathetic tone. So you're a student of the Wim Hof method, if I'm not mistaken. Can you share how you were introduced to it and then your journey through the, the Wim style of breathing and, and kind of why? I, I think it was, it was 2012 when we did, uh, I got to participate in an event called Seal Fit. And that was my first introduction to anything that had to do with breath work. And it came from Mark Devine, who is a former Navy SEAL commander and, and the creator of SEAL Fit. And he coaches or teaches something called box breathing. And essentially, the cadence is inhale, hold, exhale, hold for equal lengths of time. You can do it for two, four, six, whatever, as long as they're all equal. Hence, box, right? You think of a square, all sides are equal. And that was a really profound thing for me. It was the first time I really ever focused on breathing and, and noticed its ability to quiet and calm my mind. Uh, it's one of the methods that I talk about in the book, but I've actually adapted it based on my conversation with Dr. Stephen Porges, who, and I'm sure you've probably heard this from Brian McKenzie and, and those guys, that if the exhalation is longer than the inhalation, mm -hmm then breathing becomes a parasympathetic activity. So, so the inhalation, breathing in, is a kind of charging or energizing thing for our body. The exhalation is a relaxing thing. And uh, if the exhalation is longer than 
it becomes parasympathetic. So for my box breathing practice, I've extended the exhale, which makes it, you know, kind of a lopsided box. But what I'm doing is trying to make it parasympathetic. So I, I focus on a longer exhalation. There's also a type of breathing called parachute breathing, where we can simply inhale as much as we can pack our, our diaphragm and then our lungs through nasal inhalation and then open the mouth and exhale through our mouth for as long as we can, but you know, making that significantly longer than the inhalation. Mm -hmm. And within two to four cycles of breath that way, most people are already in a parasympathetic state. The point in all this is that, you know, and I think this is why so many people gravitate towards breathing is that we can control it very easily we can very quickly use it to change our state and get to this place that we want. And, and third, that it's, it's probably the easiest access point for reaching that place of meditation or that place that we want to get in our minds where, where we are quiet and more thoughtful and, and maybe responsive instead of reactive. As far as Wim Hof goes, you know, it was, it's just another type of breathing um, that I encountered um, over the last few years. And to be honest, it really wasn't one that I sought out um, and, and said, hey, I want to be a student of this one. Um, now, I've always gravitated towards the cold. I, I love it. I think that's a whole different conversation. But, but I, I, I do not practice Wim Hof breathing on a daily basis. What actually happened was I met this incredible woman about a year ago, actually, when I was speaking at the Biohacker Summit in Sweden. Her name is Kiki Bosch. And it turns out she is an ice water free diver. So there's only like five of these in the world. Um, <laughs> that, but that, think, that makes a lot of sense. That free diving <laughs> off of a glacier. Whoa. And she does it without a wetsuit. So I wanted to have her on our podcast. And I knew uh, she's from the Netherlands. And she actually happened to be coming to the States for a while. And we'd been in contact. And, and I just said, you know, hey, you know, can I talk you into coming down to Virginia Beach and, and we could record a podcast? And she was like, yeah, you know, can we set up a workshop and, you know, really make it, you know, make the trip worth it for me? I was like, yeah, let's do it. So she is a certified Wim Hof instructor. Mm. And that's how that came to be. Um, you know, so I guess it was two weekends ago now, you know, we hosted this Wim Hof workshop and, you know, I was just, I jumped at the chance to learn the method, the way Wim wanted it to be taught, because I think there's, you know, look, we can go online and Google it and, uh, see so many different iterations of it. And, and I just wanted to see, you know, how he and these certified instructors would teach this method. And, um, what's really cool about these workshops is that, that you don't just learn his method. You learn a few other types of breathing. And I think it's a, it's a very valuable experience for, for anybody who has any interest in, in learning more about breathing and, and how powerful it can be for not just controlling your state and your nervous system, but also uh, levels of consciousness. You know, I've, I've actually had the chance to do two different workshops on two weekends in a row. And both times I've had some pretty intense and pretty powerful, profound alterations in consciousness, I guess would be the right way to say it. Wow. Um, so, and, and that's just it. I mean, I think that's what the great thing about breathing is it's one of these state shifting things that we can use anytime, anywhere. You know, you can do box breathing when you're driving in traffic and you can turn a stressful situation into a time to be parasympathetic and now, now, not Wim Hof. I mean, there are, um, you wouldn't do that in traffic because you basically controlled hyperventilate, which could lead to passing out. So if you're listening to this and you want to try these, <laughs> don't do Wim Hof while you're driving. 
but you can do either the parachute breathing or the box breathing uh, in the car. It's funny because I, I started pushing the limits of run breath work while I was driving, just playing around. And soon I was like, you know what? I can't do that. I can't push myself while I'm driving because it takes my mind off of something that is incredibly necessary to be present for. So that is a little <laughs> request. Do not push the boundaries of breathing while you're driving or playing <laughs> right. in or around water, please. Yeah, and that was actually really interesting with the Wim Hof workshop was to find out that contrary to, to what I thought and what most people say, uh, he does not do the breathing and then immediately get into the water. He separates them uh, he, if he does the breathing prior to cold exposure, he does the breathing 20 or 30 minutes before. And so, so that's like when I say I wanted to hear how they taught it, you know, that's one of the examples of, you know, just getting the information straight from, from him. Awesome. Well, I'm going to shift you away. We got, we got a little bit of time left. I want to pull you back to the tail end of your book and, and, you know, some personal philosophy stuff. Cause I, I believe that you poured your heart and soul onto these pages, man. I mean, this is a, a, a true account of where you're at right now and the message that you're bringing to the world. You know, you end on values and integrity. And those are two words that for me ring true. And I'll explain why is I'm, Offball for me is about virtuous athlete development. I want to use the vessel of sport to introduce and make youth aware that they're learning skills for life through sport in that moment and, and attaching them to that consciously and then building an integrity system, a way that they can, you know, pillars or, or you know, scaffolding for their life to then build. So those two words hit me like a ton of bricks, man. Talk to me and let's close out this podcast around why you close with values and integrity. Yeah, I, I think I mean, those are two things that really matter to me. Uh, it means a lot that, you know, to hear you say what you said about, you know, just feeling like I poured myself into this book. I mean, I, I really did. And it means a lot to, to hear people realize that and, and recognize it and, and that it resonates with people is rewarding to hear. Uh, so thank you. Absolutely. Um, I mean, integrity is, I, I know this sounds so cliche and I almost hate to say it, but the saying of integrity is who you are and what you do when no one's around or when no one's watching. You know, to, to keep it in the, the realm of, of athletics and sport, think about who you want as a teammate. I want teammates where I know they've got my back. I know they're going to do the right thing. If coach isn't watching, are they still shooting their free throws? Are they still going as hard as they can? Are they still touching the line on a suicide? And I can promise you that you know if you're the kind of person that coach says shoot 100 free throws and then leaves and comes back in 20 minutes, and you're the guy that said, oh, well, coach wasn't here. I shot 20 and told him I shot 100. I don't expect to see that athlete on the Olympic podium winning a medal. And that's integrity and that's values. That's living a life that is aligned with stated values and being a person of integrity. And if you're not that kind of person, I don't want you on my team in sports. I don't want you on my team in business. Uh, but conversely, if you're the guy that is going to do whatever it takes, even if it's just for a 1% increase, that's who we want to surround ourselves with in life, in our social circles, in our relationships, in our businesses and, and in sport. And Sport is such a great metaphor and, and great foundation for, for the rest of life. I mean, if you can be a great teammate in sport and a great competitor in sport, then those are things that carry over into all those other areas that we just talked about. I mean, relationships, business, you know, s social networks, whatever. We're, we're not taught in school enough how to figure out what's important to us. What, what are our individual values? Somebody who's, who's been a really big influence on me over the last year is a guy named Chris Dancy. And he has a book that'll be coming out later this year 
It's called I Am You Tomorrow. And he's known as the world's most connected man. And he does a lot of measuring. And here's a quote that says, we don't know how to measure what we value. So we value what we can measure. <laughs> and that's, that's applicable to, uh, we, we measure how much you make as a way to, you know, value, um, you know, we value how much someone makes as, as a measure of, you know, how successful they are as a human. Um, because we really don't know how to measure the real things that, that matter. You can look at it in, in health and fitness where, you know, we, we measure certain things, steps or, or how much weight you lift or whatever, because we really don't know how to value or measure the, the things that we truly do value. And I think that's what makes conversations like this so powerful because we're, we're, we're trying to shed light on the fact that just because we measure certain things doesn't mean that those are what is truly valuable. And the things that are actually valuable are the ones that are the intangibles and the things that really can't be measured and, and kind of touched. So back to your question, I think an exercise that I think is has been profoundly impactful for me and for many other people is to simply take five minutes and write down your values. Mm. You hear this as like business advice, like what are the core values of your business? Well, how many people do that as an individual? Um, Very what are five words <laughs> yeah. that you want to be defined by? How do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be perceived or seen? And I think just a simple exercise like that where, you know, we write these things down, we, we just think about them, give it thought bring awareness to it and then, you know, write them down and, and you can iterate on it. The first five may not be the ultimate ones that you decide on, but, you know, think about this over the next week and, and then move through the rest of your month, the rest of this year, the rest of your life in alignment with those things. And I promise you, you will become the version of yourself that you want to be. I'm with you, man. And that's, that's a huge part of what I can't wait to bring to, to younger athletes is, this understanding of values and integrity. When you get on the court, what do you stand for? And I want to ask you one final question. And it's it's a word that air quote is taboo at this moment. Where does love fit into all of this, Ryan? Is love taboo right now? It, well, it, in sport, it is. Like the, you got guys like John O'Sullivan and John Wooden who absolutely stand for love, and and it, there's a place. But when I go to a coaching symposium and talk to to coaches to love their their athletes more i mean it's a bit taboo and i i don't like that but yeah a lot of what we're talking about here for me i mean love is at the foundation of everything that we're talking about and there's a there's a great i agree with that 100 percent. i mean when i think about the coaches who uh, and, and I mean, to bring this full circle, I mean, go, go back to what we were saying earlier about like little league and how powerful that is as an influencer. I mean, I had no idea then, but it's something that I'm ac acutely aware of now is, is how much time was put into making that happen by the adults around us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our coaches were, were the parents of, of my friends. And, and I think back to, you know, the impact that those coaches had on me in little league and they didn't have to do that. It, that was their free time. They didn't get paid to, to coach or, or to put everything they had into us and, and, and helping us, you know, learn how to pitch or catch or, or whatever, staying after practice. And that only comes from love. And when I think about the coaches at a, at a college or, or a professional level that, that I have a lot of respect for, 
Yeah, John Wooden is a great one. I mean, if you don't think he loved those guys on his teams, there's no way they would have been that successful. You know, you think about any coach that, like the, the, the cliche image in the movies of a coach being carried off the field after winning. I mean, if those guys didn't love each other in the locker room or, or you know, love their coach, they wouldn't be carrying him off the field after that victory. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I get it. You know, in 2018, there's a lot of like, you know, we live in that Me Too world and, and a lot of kind of we're afraid to, to do anything because anything can be taken the wrong way. And I, I think everything stems from from love. I mean, it's um, <laughs> there, there's a, a philosophy of darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. And light and love are, are kind of one and the same there. And, and I think we have to have self-love and, and self-respect before we can, you know, project it outwards. Uh, you can't give what you don't have. So, you know, that's part of the responsibility that we have towards other people is to, um, you know, when you get on an airplane, they say, put your mask on first. And, you know, if you don't do that, you have zero chance of helping anybody else. And, you know, I think bringing self-love and, and self-respect to our, our own pursuits and our own world um, allows us to connect with ourselves so that we can then connect with and help and empower other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to share this because we've touched upon it before. Like those, a lot of the people that are still, you know, air quotes, stuck in that weight training, going to the gym, I believe it's because they're, they're, they're kind of punishing themselves versus once you go into the gym to love yourself, you know, it's not about acceptance and then staying there, but you accept yourself as who you are. You love yourself and, you, and there's that Kaizen, that striving, that perpetual improvement. Once you turn that self-practice into self-love and, you know, how much you can deadlift is how much you can love yourself, you know, kind of paralleling that you can start to love outwardly and there's still there's a lot of people that are punishing themselves in a physical way because that's they think that they need to go there and just ruin themselves versus build up um i don't know if that rings true with you at all but try to position that to people like go and train hard but train train to love yourself more versus break yourself down more yeah no i i I totally get it i mean I've, i've been that guy i've been in that place where you know going in was it was cathartic. It was a type of therapy, but that that's a slippery slope. I mean, are you going in, um, you know, to see improvement or to get to a better place or are you going in to punish yourself? And I think there's a meme that has gone around, but it was something like, you know, uh, fitness should be a celebration of what you can do, not punishment for what you have done. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's part of that evolution and, and, and involvement of kind of where we are in our journey. Well, dude, I'll end it there, but I just want to say thank you. Like, seriously, thank you for putting the effort that you put into that book. Thanks for going through what you've been through and and sharing all of that so that we can all benefit. You know, Fuck Your Feelings is (laughs) so good. And it's, it's a book that has already made an impact in my life and is, you know, super parallel to what I'm seeking out right now. So thanks so much for, for putting what you have out to the world because I know it took guts to, to be vulnerable to share the stuff that you've shared because you, you speak about tangible experiences in your life. And it's, it's amazing. So this, this isn't a sell here. If, if you're looking for an impact, like grab, grab Ryan's book because it's, it's amazing. Um, but thank you before all of that. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity and, and thanks for, for your words there. It, it means a lot to hear that. So thanks, Martin. Absolutely. And 
where can people find you, connect with you on the socials? Just because I, I would love for, for this community, the softball community, to be able to uh, experience your journey moving forward to, and to continue to hear you and, and have you as a leader. Yeah, so social media, Instagram is my platform of choice. Uh, so personal account there is at Ryan Muncy with an underscore uh, at the end of that. And then for the podcast, it is at betterhumanproject.org with an underscore after that. Um, then websites, ryanmuncy.com, betterhumanproject.org. Podcast is Better Human Project. And um, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have anybody that wants to, to follow along, join us and uh, be a part of this thing. So. Sweet. Well, all links will be available in the show notes. And thanks so much for your time and energy today. No problem. Thank you.